Okay, in my first uh, two lectures, uh, I've discussed the essential uh, properties of the God of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. And I've drawn attention to certain prima facie conceptual problems associated with some of those properties. However, my admittedly brief analyses of these have led me to conclude that the conceptual problems posed by the essential divine properties are by no means insuperable. And certainly I would suggest they're no greater than those associated with the properties of many other entities that we believe exist. Had I been giving lectures on the nature of quarks, on the nature of civilization, or on the nature of beauty, I wouldn't have encountered any less conceptual problems than I've encountered in discussing the nature of God. Indeed, I'd have encountered uh, considerably more. So it is that I concluded at the end of last lecture, if you'll remember, that the sentence, there is a God, has a clear meaning. It says something pretty determinate and something that in itself is relatively simple, I even suggested. So I finished my last lecture, if you were here, uh, you'll recall, I hope, by endorsing a particular reading of the traditional theistic uh, doctrine, which I call the doctrine of divine simplicity. I didn't really argue that uh, that doctrine was right um, explicitly, um, although I gave an analogy, but I uh, did close by mentioning that if you, in essence, found what I said in the first two lectures relatively easy to understand, relatively coherent, relatively simple, well then that's the best argument, in effect, I could ever give for the doctrine of divine simplicity as I'm uh, understanding it. If you found what I said in the first two lectures uh, confusing, incoherent, apparently needlessly complicated, well, of course, that's compatible with the falsity of the doctrine of divine simplicity, but it's perhaps worth pointing out it's also compatible with the truth of the doctrine of uh, divine simplicity combined with the truth of the claim that I'm a pretty bad lecturer. But if only to sweep that alternative hypothesis from the table and your consideration, I'm going to be assuming in what goes on that the concept of God is uh, pretty simple. Okay. That it is simple is going to be important to me in later lectures, uh, given that it's a canon of rationality that Ketuis Parabus we prefer simpler theories to more complex ones. We need the simplicity as a guide to truth principle in order to overcome a quite general problem in life, the problem of underdetermination of theory by data. There will always be an infinite number of hypotheses that could explain any set of data in that they'd render that set of data uh, more probable than they'd otherwise be. And we need something to narrow our focus to decide which of this infinite uh, number of hypotheses is most probably true, which uh, we should believe in. And simplicity, I suggest, is the only thing that can do the job. That's uh, uh, something you might want to reflect on, think about, and I'll give you a little thing uh, that you might like to look up at the top of the handout. Okay, so my claim is going to be that the hypothesis that there's a God is one that it's thus reasonable to hold on the basis of evidence to the extent that God's nature is simple, and I've suggested it is, and there is evidence that needs explaining and that positing God would explain. And I've argued that it, God's nature is relatively simple, and in future lectures I'm going to go looking to see if I can find any evidence. Uh, that needs explanation and that God's existence would explain. If I find out that there isn't any such evidence, well then the simplicity of the hypothesis is going to be uh, a bit of a moot point really. However, if I find out that there is the right sort of evidence, then the simplicity of the hypothesis will be crucial in eliminating as equally probable other hypotheses that would explain that evidence um, equally well, but not for their relative complexity. Okay, but that's, that's for the future. Before I go looking for this evidence, I'm going to finish off talking about the properties of God that all theists agree in ascribing to them. So that's going to be finished off this week. You'll remember from the first lecture, I hope, uh, that as well as the essential properties of God, uh, theists agreed that God also has the following accidental uh, properties. 
He has the property of being creator of the world. He has the property of being a source of moral obligations for us. He has the property of having revealed himself to us. And he has the property of offering us everlasting life. First, view these properties as accidental properties of God, I suggest, in virtue of the essential property of God that is his perfect freedom. God might have chosen not to create a world at all, but rather to remain the sole existent being, in which case, obviously, he'd not have had the property of being a creator. And had he not had the property of being a creator, there would be no world, and hence no us, who he could have generated moral obligations for, no us to reveal himself to, no us to offer everlasting life to. So, despite their being accidental, then, in, because of this argument, all theists agree that God has, in fact, got these properties um, contingently conditional on his freely choosing to bring into existence a world of this type. So I'm going to talk about each of these in turn. They're still in the common ground. You remember I said in the first lecture, I'm interested in the common conception of God shared across Judaism, Christianity and Islam, not their differences. We're still in that common ground, I suggest. Okay then, property uh, 10, uh, created them. Thesa agreed that God is the creator of everything that there is other than himself. And the traditional theistic, as opposed to deistic view, is that God didn't just create the world in the sense of starting it off as someone might create a firework display by lighting the two blue touch paper and then retiring. Uh, rather, God creates the world in the sense of keeping it in being, sustaining it from moment to moment, rather as one might create a dance by moving one's body. Indeed, if what I said in the first lecture is right, that you can think of the universe as God's body, then this dance analogy is a very close one, but as I cautioned you, uh, that claim that you can think of the universe as God's body is very much a minority one amongst uh, theists. Anyway, be that as it may, the world depends ultimately on God's will for its existence and character as expressed by the natural laws which govern the behaviour of its constituents. Were God to have willed that no universe exist, none would have existed were he to have willed that a universe existed but it had different natural laws, well then that would have existed instead. And if there are any non-divine, non-physical beings, as um, Thais often think there are, and we might think, well, it's metaphysically possible, there might be souls, angels, for example, well, then God created them too, according to Theism. They're also things that depend for their existence and fundamental character on God's creative will. Had he willed that they not exist, or that slightly different souls or types of angels exist, well then different souls and angels would have existed instead, or none would have existed. So at the end of last week's uh, lecture, I talked about God's existence being metaphysically necessary. There's nothing that could cause him to not exist. Not even himself, I suggested. If there's a God, then in virtue of his omnipotence, everything else that exists is not necessary in that sense, is not metaphysically necessary, because there is something that could cause everything else to not exist, viz. God. So everything else is contingent on his will. And in this way then, even though it's contingent on his will that there be anything other than him, that if there is anything other than him... Uh, it not be necessary is uh, something that isn't contingent. Thus it's no accident that they see God as creator in this sense of everything other than himself. Everything other than God depends utterly for God on its existence, its character, its persistence. In that sense it's contingent. Okay, property 11, uh, creator of value. As well as living in a world in which we discover, through observation and experiment, that there are various natural laws controlling the movement of physical particles and the like, we also live in a world in which we discover, through a rather different sort of observation and experiment, that certain things are good for us, certain things are bad, and thus we learn that we're obliged to follow certain principles of conduct. Now, of course, not every uh, philosopher agrees uh, that there is objective value of this sort um, and that it can be accessed in this way, but almost every non-philosopher does, and you'll remember from a previous lecture, I'm assuming for the sake of argument, that the majority of non-philosophers are right in this. There is this sort of objective value. Okay. 
Now, the first says that God is perfectly good and that he perfectly fulfills the moral ideal that these observations and experiments and our own uh, perceptions of moral reality more or less distinctly uh, put us in touch with. God is a perfect fulfilment of them. Okay, so should they say that these moral principles, like the laws of nature, are dependent ultimately on his will, that he creates them, uh, he perfectly fulfills an ideal that he himself has selected for creation from any number of alternatives? Should they say that? Or should they say that these moral principles are not ultimately a part of his creation? They're not ultimately dependent for their existence and character on his will? That he actually perfectly fulfills a standard which is rather than part of his creation, something that in some sense pre-exists him. Uh, well, all fairs agree that if God tells you to do something, you are under an obligation to do it. If he tells you not to do it, you are under an obligation not to do it. But beyond this, there are differences of opinion amongst theirs, because there are different responses to this dilemma that I've just posited, which is usually called the Euthyphro dilemma. The Euthyphro dilemma is so called because it was first raised by Plato in a dialogue of that name, and in that dialogue, uh, sort of Socrates, Plato's spokesperson, uh, in this context maybe, uh, asks a young man called Euthyphro a question which amounts to this, is something good because God wills it, or does he will it because it's good? Okay. So there are three possible answers uh, to this question, as you'll see uh, where we are on the handout now. Firstly, things are good just because God wills them. Secondly, God wills things because he recognises them as good. And thirdly, in sort of middle way, well, some things are good because God wills them, some things he wills just because he recognises them as good. So I'm going to consider these uh, answers in that order. Firstly, then, what's to be said of the theory that things get to be good uh, just because uh, God wills them? Well, I should make clear, this is the answer to the dilemma that says that all moral truths are dependent on God's will. Uh, if it says, oh, only some have this feature, well, it's the third, third view. Okay. But as such, it seems to imply that had God's will been different, and there can have been no pre-existing moral principle constraining his will to ensure that it hadn't been, so had God's will been different, he could have distributed moral values entirely differently from the way we actually find them distributed. But if that were true, it seems that he could have made our world be one where uh, torturing small Labrador puppies with pliers and car batteries was absolutely morally obligatory. And ours be a world where giving a tenth of one's income to charity was absolutely morally reprehensible. But this, um, it seems to many, is implausible enough to be sufficient reason to reject this answer to the Euthyphro dilemma. We can see immediately that there's no possible world in which these things have these moral properties, in which it's brilliant to torture small Labrador puppies with pliers and car batteries and so forth. Not even God could make such a world. Remember, God's omnipotence shouldn't uh, be taken to imply that he can do the logically uh, impossible or metaphysically impossible. Another reason to reject this theory is often taken to be that the property of being good will on this account simply turn into the property of being how God wills one to be and so that the claim is go that God is good will turn into the claim that God is as he wills himself to be which doesn't seem to be a sort of substantial enough uh, fact to act as a reason for praising them. Secondly then, what's to be said of the theory that God wills things just because he recognises them as good? So the second answer, and again I make clear this is the answer that says that all moral truths are independent of God's will. If it says, oh this is true of some of them, but of others the first account's true, well then it's the third way, which we'll come to in a bit. So one troubling result of this, third, uh, sorry, this second view is that God cannot change the moral status of any action simply by issuing commands. He's a sort of impotent observer of this reality. He maybe conveys interesting information about it more or less effectively to us, but he's not really doing anything. He has, in short, no moral authority. 
that this seems to many implausible enough to be sufficient reason to reject this answer. Various humans have the sort of authority that can enable them to change the moral status of certain actions by willing that they be done or that they not be done. Uh, one might think of one's parents, for example, assuming uh, that they're net benefactors, that they would have this sort of authority over one. So surely God would have this sort of authority to an even greater extent. So finally then, what's to be said of the theory that some things are good just because God wills them and other things uh, get to be good uh, because he recognises them as independently good and, and wills them as a result. Now, this is, a, or this is of course a very controversial area and you'll have heard a different answer to this very dilemma if you were at the lecture uh, yesterday evening. Um, but this third way seems to me the most plausible, so it's the one I would um, uh, endorse seems to combine the advantages of both the previous two answers and none of the disadvantages. But this is a vexed issue, as I say. Don't, don't uh, take my word for it. As I say in my cautionary notes, don't take my word for anything other than that you shouldn't take my word for anything. So according to this third view, some things were right or wrong independently of God's will, and whatever he willed or commanded, uh, he couldn't affect their moral status. Torturing small Labrador puppies with pliers and car batteries is plausibly one of the things that gets to be bad independently of God's will, and uh, not even God could affect that moral status. Other things are right or wrong solely because God, who has the right sort of authority in virtue of being a net benefactor, commands that we do or we not do them. And examples of these things are going to be more uh, controversial because there's going to be nothing in the activities themselves that would enable us to detect them as right or wrong independently of viewing them in terms of God's commands, unlike torturing small Labrador puppies in this fashion. So I'm going to give an example of one for each of the uh, main monotheistic religions. So for Jews, an example of an action that might be right just because God commands it is perhaps male circumcision. For Christians, it might be baptism. For Muslims, it might be going on hard once in one's life if one can afford to do so. So I suggest then that Thayer should take the third option in answering the Euthyphro dilemma. And as I say, it's controversial. I give a more nuanced defence of this as I think of it, as I say, the best answer in a paper, the reference to which is on the handout. And there's another reference on the handout to something I've written which gives a more uh, or less partisan overview of the, all the options one could take. OK, let's go on to the next property. Property 12, Revealer. As well as believing that God has created this world, any parallel universes, any souls or angels that there might be, and created by his commands various obligations for us, Thais also believed that God's taken steps to ensure that we who exist in this world aren't left in complete ignorance of his existence and will. He has revealed himself to us. Well, it's no surprise, of course, that Thais agree on this. If there's a God, then the fact that he exists and that he's commanded this rather than that are very important facts. And so it's no surprise that God would have taken steps to reveal these facts to us rather than leave us in, in ignorance of them. Now, whilst all Thais agreed that God has the property of being a revealer then, uh, of course, famously, the particular theistic religions disagree about uh, what the nature of that revelation is. Thais agree that throughout history, prophets, institutions have spoken uh, the word of God in immediate uh, fashion to the rest of us and that God himself has directly spoken now and again to individuals, for example, Moses on Mount Sinai. But there's not uh, quite a universal agreement by any means amongst theists across Judaism, Christianity and Islam on who these prophets have been, who the best theologians are, what the divinely appointed institutions for communicating God's message to the current generation are, and so on. Now, this train of thought can't but lead one to ask why hasn't God made it more clear uh, both that he exists and what his commands are? Why hasn't he sort of singled out one religion rather than another as the conduit of his continuing revelation to us in a way that's more evidentially unambiguous uh, to the average human? 
and so on. As we saw in discussing the property of omniscience as it pertains to perfect freedom, not believing the right things about what descriptions one's actions will satisfy reduces one's freedom in performing those actions. It means one might bodge things up, one might inadvertently do things. So freedom in choosing to do something requires a certain amount of true belief about the thing. But for creatures other than God, and for freedom to choose to be less than morally ideal, it also requires, I suggest, a certain degree of ignorance of the truth of theism. If we were absolutely convinced at every moment of our lives of God's existence and will for us, it would never be possible for us to choose to do anything other than what would be ex hypothesi, obviously what we ought to do, obviously the best thing for us to do. So to preserve this power of ours to do less than we ought, and you might remember from the last lecture I argued it really is a power for us to be able to do less than we ought, even though it wouldn't be a power for God, it would be a liability for him. So to preserve this power of ours to do less than we ought, God therefore must ensure there's some epistemic distance between his creatures and the truth of theism and the nature of his will for us. So this is the situation, as I suggest the theist is best uh, advised to think of it. It would be good for us were God to reveal unambiguously his existence and will, as these are very important matters for us. But for him to make this revelation one that was absolutely cognitively inescapable would also be bad for us, in that it would remove our freedom to choose to do less than what is perfect. If tomorrow we woke up knowing with absolute certainty, without even a shadow of a doubt, of God's existence and will for us at every instant, well then we'd no longer be able to choose to be anything but perfectly good. We'd no longer have any freedom uh, to choose to do what we knew to be less than ideal. And given that we'd be no longer free to choose to do that which we knew less, was less than ideal, well, we'd have lost something that was in itself a good, a power for us. But we'd have gained something that is in itself a good, a perfect revelation of what we should be. So one might think then that the best situation for uh, finite creatures such as ourselves would be for us to live successively in two worlds. One where we're free to choose to do what we know to be less than perfect, and one where that freedom is eliminated, but we get the good of perfect revelation instead. You can't have your cake and eat it at the same time, but you can have your cake at one time and then eat it later. Once we'd lost the freedom to do what we know to be less than perfect, we couldn't choose to regain it. We'd have precisely uh, lost the ability to make such a choice. So if God does want to give us both goods and yet respect our freedom, he can only do so sequentially, putting us first in a world where there's epistemic distance between us and the truth of theism and so on, and thus we have the freedom uh, that I talked about, and then moving us to a world of perfect revelation, a world where we do lose that freedom, but we gain um, a perfect revelation which is in itself a good, and possibly making that movement from one world to the next dependent on our freely choosing uh, to seek it. Now that argument is a bit brisk, but I hope in an impressionistic way it's given you uh, something uh, that you might want to reflect on the potential strengths and weaknesses of. Let me move on to the next property on my list then, uh, of a offer of everlasting life. Now, theists agree that God offers us everlasting life in heaven, and there's much disagreement amongst theists about how widely this offer of this is extended, or most think the offer at least is extended to all, and what, if anything, one needs to do in order to kind of accept uh, the offer, well, and whether we'll all ultimately accept it as well. So all theists agree that for some, at least, death is not the end, rather it's just the beginning of an everlasting and blessed afterlife. And within Judaism, Christianity and Islam, there's also a remarkable consensus as to the nature of this afterlife. Uh, there are two points which, whilst not universally held by theists, are very common. Firstly, there'll be a resurrection, and consequently our post-mortem existence will not be a disembodied existence. It won't be one where we're sort of floating around ethereal souls, somehow telepathically communicating with one another. No, no, there'll be much more spatio-temporal than that. 
It may be one where the relations possible in space-time as we know it are augmented, but it won't be one where they're diminished. Okay. Secondly, there'll be a last judgment. Uh, we will be held to account, uh, in some sense, for what we've done whilst on Earth. And after this last judgment, they tend to agree there'll be a final division uh, between those who go on from that judgment to everlasting life in God's presence, that's heaven, that's the good result, and those who go on to it, uh, everlasting death, if you like, in his absence, health, that's the bad result. Just as heaven is a com- place of sort of complete fulfilment for body, mind and spirit, uh, so hell is a place of complete torment for body, mind and spirit. So, what philosophical issues are raised by the claim that we'll live again after our deaths? To either enjoy or endure uh, one of these states. Well, firstly, of course, the question is, could it happen? Is it um, metaphysically possible? So that's the question I'm going to address first. If it's not metaphysically possible, we've no need to either hope for it or be worried about it, because it couldn't happen. Not even God can make it happen. But my argument will be that we have no reason to think that the persistence conditions of persons are such that persons could not survive the at least temporary destruction of their bodies. Thus, I'll argue that a person surviving the at least temporary destruction of his or her current body is something which God, were he to exist, could bring about. So I'm going to argue that it it could happen. Excuse me. Roughly speaking, there seem to me to be two ways for me to try and make sense of the possibility that we might survive our deaths. And the first way is the rather obvious one. It's simply to suggest that one is not or not essentially one's body or any part of it at all. Uh, Now, such a position would most naturally be associated with that of Descartes, and as I presume most of you will know, according to Descartes, the human person, as we encounter him or her, uh, or human being, perhaps I'd better say, as we encounter him or her, is a composite of two distinct substances, the soul, which is in fact the person, which is immaterial, and the body, which is material. The person is to be identified entirely with the soul, and saying principle could survive the destruction of the material body entirely non-problematically. Just as um, if you're a physicalist, you think the person to be identified with the brain or something, you won't have any problems thinking that the person could survive the destruction of the clothes they happen to be wearing at the moment, because that wasn't anything that constituted the person. So Descartes thinks the attitude you physicalists have to all these some bits of body that they're not essential to you. You should have to all um, bits of physical reality. None of it is essential. Okay, so. According to this way out of the problem, how to survive death, what happens at death is that the body does indeed die, but the soul, and hence the person, goes on, uh, either in combination with some new body or perhaps with the resurrected old body at a later time. We could, in principle, have gone on in that ethereal way, but God has chosen not to um, use uh, that as the uh, manner of our post-mortem life. So Cartesian substance dualism, then, could it be established, I suggest, would easily solve this problem of how one might survive one's bodily death. And if you're a Cartesian substance dualist, then you might like to sort of switch off and think, well, problem solved, no need to listen to the next bit, but, you know, turn, as I said, in a a, a sort of standby mode so you remember to switch on uh, later. Let me just then bank that result for a moment and turn to consider what I imagine is the majority view uh, in the room, that Cartesian substance dualism is false. So we're still looking for an answer. So the second way of making sense of the possibility one might survive the destruction of one's body it suggests that although one is in some sense uh, one's body and although one does indeed have good reason to believe that one's body is temporarily destroyed at death, one cannot know that it's finally destroyed. One's body and hence oneself could be reconstituted by a sufficiently powerful being at a later time. And that would square with the traditional view of resurrection rather than um, incorporeal sort of translocation of the soul. 
A slightly different theory would emerge when one to stress that although one is at some level of description entirely physical, one is one's body, the mental properties which constitute one's psychology and thus personhood belong to another level of description and form descriptions of one as a person which could in principle apply to another body later after the final destruction of one's current body. So within the non-Cartesian way of making sense of the possibility that one might survive one's death, two models thus present themselves, corresponding to whether one thinks it's more important that the matter, the physical stuff out of which one's currently composed, survives, persists, or that the arrangement, what in Aristotelian terms might have been called the form of that matter, survives. Perhaps especially whether the psychological form, that's the thing that's important, survives and is reinstantiated in the future. So at the first extreme, the, oh, it's the actual stuff, uh, end of the physicalist sort of spectrum an analogy suggests itself which I, uh, to me anyway and I'll suggest it to you so it'll have suggested itself to all of us by the end of it um, the analogy of a motor engine disassembled for repair and then reassembled uh, let's say what seems plausible that a motor engine is entirely physical there are no souls or whatever floating around its identity is entirely governed by the identity of its parts and given those principles then, imagine the following circumstance. I start with an engine composed of, let's say, 500 parts. I strip it down, distributing these parts fairly widely over my garage floor, sending some off uh, to specialists for reconditioning. As a result of this destructive process, I then have no engine, but just a fairly widely distributed collection of engine parts, some on the garage floor, some of these reconditioning places. Eventually, the parts sent by B to others are returned, and the parts on the floor are collected together again by myself, and I skillfully reassemble the engine, and it works. The disassembly of my engine, then, can be seen as a case of the engine going out of existence for a period of time, and then coming back into existence. I started with an engine, had a period when there was no engine, then I had my engine back. The engine which came back into existence was one and the same engine as the engine which ceased to exist when I uh, took the engine apart, rather than an entirely new engine, in virtue of being composed of the same parts. Now, it is, of course, only too easy to imagine how things such as my engine, once disassembled, might never come back into existence. A story at least equally probable to that that I've just told would involve my starting with my engine, the engine going out of existence as I disassemble it, my then having a collection of engine parts on the garage floor, my trying to reassemble them, my realising my knowledge and abilities aren't up to it, my hence having a pile of scrap metal on the floor, my hence having my wife saying, I told you so. So without a sufficiently skilled mechanic, engines cannot, as a contingent matter of fact, be brought back to life, if you will, if they're once destroyed. But with a sufficiently skilled mechanic, they can be. So what conclusion can we draw from this engine example? Or am I encouraging you to draw? You might think people aren't quite like this. Well, my claim would be that at least some uh, entirely physical things can survive temporal gaps in their existence. And I see no argument against suggesting that human beings, although entirely physical in the way that engines are, if you think that human beings are entirely physical, if you're a Cartesian substance dualist, you'll no need to be exploring this option. But if you did think humans were entirely physical in the way that engines are, well then they might similarly be items of the sort whose histories could be discontinuous in the way that engine existence sometimes is, i.e. they could survive disassembly, death. So according to such a view, what happens at death, if you combine it with theism, according to such a view, what happens at death is that we, the essentially corporeal person, go out of existence as our body parts are disassembled, if you will, by those physiological uh, changes that constitute death and decomposition. But if there were an omniscient and omnipotent God to act in the role of cosmic mechanic, if you will, he could keep an eye on where the parts, once disassembled, went, whatever these parts are, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, superstrings, whatever they turn out to be, he'll keep an eye on them all. 
and on one day, traditionally, traditionally referred to as the last day, he could collect them all together again, reconstitute them, or enough of them, in the correct way. And on that stage, we come back into existence. Now, this analogy might lead one to think of the importance, or otherwise, or contemplate this, of the continuity of engine parts for the identity of the reconstituted engine uh, with that of the disassembled. Had the engine parts uh, been lost, I could not have brought the same engine back to life, rather than perhaps create a very similar new one out of uh, similar parts. However, one might be struck by the thought that had only one part been lost, and the remaining 499 correctly been reassembled, along with a functionally equivalent new part, well then that resultant engine would still have been identical with the engine I disassembled, even though one part was different. So one might think, I wonder what the sort of you know, boundary here is. Um, it's an interesting question, I won't get into it. But one might think that perhaps for persons it's not actually the identity of matter that is important at all, but rather the arrangement of matter, the form. And perhaps it's not the physical form, but the psychological one uh, that in some way is generated, of course, on physicalist theories by the physical. So at this other end of the matter kind of form spectrum, one might think of the following analogy. Consider a uh, computer running a particular piece of software. And again, let's say that computers are entirely physical, at least in the sense that they don't have Cartesian souls. Now, I wrote uh, this, uh, my scripted material, on such a computer using a word processing package, uh, which has, amongst other things, as most do, a customizable dictionary and default printer settings and uh, so on. Let's say in the course of using that particular word processing uh, program on my particular computer over the years, I've now so customized it that it's unique. There's nothing else uh, like it in the world. And uh, let's call it something, George. Okay. Now, suppose that I learn that the circuitry of my particular computer, the piece of hardware that is currently running, if you will, George, is about to wear out. Uh, Wanting to save George, I might thus upload the contents of my hard drive onto the college's server, buy a new computer, and then transfer back from the college's server onto this new computer, George. The old computer I could then throw away, could be vaporised, could be destroyed, even the college's server could then be destroyed, all of that physical stuff could go, and yet George would have survived. George would have survived then the destruction of the particular piece of hardware on which it was originally created and run. Now, some people have, of course, suggested that the relationship between our minds and bodies, and in particular our brains, is rather like that between software and hardware, and thus that the person, whilst not having a Cartesian soul, could nevertheless survive the destruction of the body that he or she is currently dependent on, even if none of the body parts uh, survived, because the person is to be identified with his or her mind rather than his or her body, and that uh, he or she can then be sort of run on another body later. So if there's a God, he could, as it were, upload us at our deaths, uh, upload the software that is us at our death into some uh, new hardware or he could reinstall it and download it onto the old hardware when we constituted at the resurrection if he wanted to but he wouldn't actually need to do that to make that thing us so overall then it seems to me that within the non-Cartesian way of understanding personal identity there's room for some disagreement for sure on the issue of whether or not persons should be understood as more like engines as more like the hardware if you will or as more like George as more like the software But whatever the truth here might lie, assuming that the truth does lie somewhere in this physicalist area rather than in the Cartesian view, I suggest the truth can't be problematic for the claim that if there's a God, he could arrange for us to survive our deaths. And if the truth isn't anywhere in there, because physicalism isn't true, because Cartesianism isn't true, well then there's certainly no problem in God arranging for our post-mortem survival either. That was the result 
I asked you to bank earlier. So I conclude it could happen that we could survive our deaths. Any plausible view of personal identity will yield it as a metaphysical possibility. Okay, so it could happen. Would it be good if it were to happen? If it would, then there's at least prima facie reason to think that God, being perfectly good, would bring it about that it happened, if he exists. So let's uh, look at that question next. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes our desires fix on something because we recognise value in it. It's responsive, our desire, to pre-existent value. Perhaps you read an overview of a lecture series about the philosophy of religion. Perhaps you recognise the questions it addresses as important questions and desiring to know more, you come along faithfully. Your desire, in that sense, has responded to pre-existent value. And when, when one's desire for something that is valuable independently of one's desiring it, for example, knowledge of important issues, when that sort of desire is satisfied, one's life goes better in that respect. It goes better even if one no longer actually desires the valuable thing. If I am informing you about important matters, then listening to me is actually making your life go better in that respect, even if by now you've lost any desire to continue listening to me. As well as responding to pre-existent value, sometimes desire fixes on something which was in itself valueless, and that by doing so creates value in it. Hume, if you're thinking uh, uh, about various philosophers who've had various views, is the person who says that that's the only way you get value into the world, more or less. And I think he's right, some values, but not of others. So some people collect miniature, miniature teapots, that is to say teapots which are too small to be of any uh, practicable use. And if that claim sounds in, in too implausible for you, why would anyone collect those? Uh, please accept my word that I've seen uh, advertised on one of these sort of QVC-type channels uh, a magazine devoted to the hobby of miniature teapot collecting. When a person who has a passion for collecting miniature teapots finds a miniature teapot that is unlike one he or she already has in his or her collection, he or she will, I presume, form a strong desire to own that teapot and to add it to his or her collection. His or her desire thus, it seems to me, making that teapot valuable for him or her. When we achieve something that's valuable only dependently on our desiring it, this in itself is not sufficient for our lives to go better in that respect. The value of miniature teapots lasts only so long as the desire for them. And the same points that may be made about benefits may also be made about harms. When we're hampered in achieving something that is valuable independently of our desiring it, then that is in itself a harm for us, regardless of what we then think about it, even if we stop desiring it. So if, whilst you're listening to me, someone sneaks up behind you and knocks you unconscious, you will then be unable to acquire greater knowledge of the philosophy of religion, and thus a harm will have befallen you, even though, by your becoming unconscious, you will have been simultaneously uh, stopped, they'll have simultaneously removed from you the desire to learn uh, any more about philosophy of religion. Okay. However, if my wife prevents me from subscribing to magazines devoted to esoteric hobbies that I've seen advertised on the television, that's only a harm in the following circumstances. If the adverts have always formed in me a desire to peruse those magazines, as in fact they always do, but if she were to simultaneously remove from me the desire to peruse the magazines by pointing out the fact that they're all rubbish, she would in fact have not harmed me at all. Indeed, given that buying such things is a waste of my money, she'd have benefited me. Okay, so drawing this together, I think we can say if death were to be the permanent cessation of the person, it would be a great harm for us. Now, some of you, will, this will strike you as so obvious that it's a pity I spend any time on it at all. If you think already, well, obviously, if someone's dying is, is bad for them, uh, then that's all I've been seeking to establish. You can just pick it up from here. But if the death were the permanent cessation of the person, it would be a great harm. 
If death were the permanent cessation of the person, it would destroy all flourishing, both in the sense of achieving what is independently valuable and in the sense of achieving what is valuable only in virtue of being desired. Now, death would always be a harm in the first sense, and it would usually also be a harm in the second sense, for most of us will continue to have hobbies and projects on a par with collecting miniature teapots uh, until we die. But it's important to stress that even when people die, having lost all interest in life, as it were, if their deaths were the end of them, they would still be bad for them in virtue of depriving them of the possibilities of those things, those goods, the value of which doesn't depend on their continuing desire for them. And that being so, we have good reason, I suggest, to think that on theism, people's deaths are not the end of them, that if there is a God, he will ensure that this terrible harm doesn't actually befall any of us. Okay. So I've uh, been suggesting that in virtue of its being best to live again in heaven after death, if there were a God, he'd ensure that people do so. But we've seen at a number of points in the argument already that there's another thing that's good for people, that they have their freedom to choose what is less than the best uh, respected. And this opens the possibility of doubting that on theism all people will enter uh, this afterlife. So, by way of a sort of illustrative example, imagine the following. Imagine you are a medical doctor offering a patient, Mr A, a certain treatment which you know would be in his best interests. If, having explained it fully to him, Mr A nevertheless refuses to give you permission so to treat him, well, it's plausible to say you oughtn't to treat him. And it's the good of respecting A's freedom outweighs the good of so treating him. And it's possibly even plausible to maintain that it does so in the case of a life-saving treatment. People's intuitions go different ways on that. Could it ever be better for God to respect our freedom if we freely chose, let's say, to go to everlasting torment in hell rather than go to everlasting bliss in heaven? Of course, it wouldn't really be in our best interest to choose to avoid an afterlife in heaven with God so we could go to hell instead. But we can choose to do that which isn't really in our best interest. And as we've seen, it's a power for us to be able to do so, at least when we exist in conditions of less than perfect knowledge of the truth of theism. But I suggest that last clause points us to a negative answer to the question, or points us rather to the question having been badly put. A perfect revelation of God's existence and will is, if you will, an offer that no one can refuse. They can't freely refuse it because to the extent that one learns the offer is being made to one, a condition which must be satisfied for one to freely refuse something is that one knows what it is one's refusing. To the extent one learns one, it's been made to one, one learns it would be supremely irrational to refuse it. Persons, uh, we have seen, recall the definition of persons offered for in Lecture 1, persons we have seen are, amongst other things, essentially rational. To the extent that one's irrational, one actually undermines one's status as a person. Of conceptual necessity, therefore, no person can be supremely irrational for all eternity, as they would be if, per impossible, they were, with full understanding of their choice, to persistently reject the offer to come out of hell and move up to heaven. So a person's choosing to reject everlasting bliss in heaven is criteria of that person's not having fully understood what it is he or she is rejecting. So that's why I say it's an offer that, <laughs> that no one can refuse. It follows then that if in the last judgment we'll be all brought to a full understanding of God's existence and will, then none of us will be free to respond to that offer with anything other than acceptance. And coming joyfully or painfully to such an understanding is precisely, of course, what constitutes being so judged. The act of coming into God's presence at the last judgment will dispel any shadow of doubt about his existence and will, thus dispel any shadow of irrationality in our response to it, will not then be able to refuse to accept him. Could he still refuse to accept us? Well, some people have done terrible uh, things, so terrible that they deserve terrible punishment, and punishment which they certainly didn't receive 
uh, this side of the grave. If you were at the lecture yesterday, you'll have heard that sort of Kant makes uh, this thoughts of this sort actually a point of an argument for the existence of God to uh, rationally stabilise the moral enterprise. Uh, you don't have to believe that. But in any case, I think you'll believe that Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, they kind of deserve some punishment. Even if they want to get into heaven at the last judgment, well, surely God ought may, or at least there's a prima facie case, he oughtn't to let them uh, because they need to go to hell uh, so that justice is served. But you can't think that even these monsters committed such terrible crimes that only a punishment of infinite duration could be appropriate. And I suggest the punishment inherent in their simply being brought fully into God's presence at the last judgment might in itself be all that justice could demand. Uh, recall the result of the a bishop's choice in Hugo's Les Miserables. I take it uh, most of us have seen the, in my opinion, excellent West End musical uh, version of that, uh, if not read the original story. Anyway, if you've seen this, uh, the musical or you've, you've read the story, uh, you'll remember the scene. At the moment that the gendarmes bring Jean Valjean before the bishop, uh, for justice, having discovered him with the bishop's stolen cutlery. The bishop's telling the gendarmes that this cutlery was a gift, feigning surprise that Valjean, uh, Valjean could have forgotten to take the candlesticks, which were also uh, a part of that gift, and thrusting these two into his hands wreaks very terrible havoc on Valjean's hardened soul, more terrible havoc than any the gendarmes could have been able to inflict had the bishop acted, as we cannot help but think perhaps we would have acted, uh, saying, give me my cutlery back, Gendarmes, do your worst. This is not the imperative of love usurping the demands of justice then. It's the imperative of love perfecting the demands of justice. The tears that Valjean later weeps are more bitter, but better for him, than any he'd have been able to weep had the bishop handed him over to the gendarmes. So, whether we regard ourselves as worthy of condemnation or destined for heaven, I suggest that Thais must fearfully expect that at the same time dare to hope that for all of us the truth is both. If there's a misright, we're all Valjeans waiting to find ourselves in front of the big bishop, if you like. Some may have already turned towards him, and for them this judgment may seem a momentary delight. Others, like Valjean himself, will not be turned until they find themselves there, and for them this meeting may seem close to a torturous, soul-searching eternity. But for each of us it will in fact pass. Once it's done, it's irreversible, perfecting work, and for each of us everlasting bliss awaits us on the other side. Well, that's my claim. Uh, but the theory that everyone will get into heaven in the end, whilst I think following in this way inescapably from the central tenets of theism, is in fact a minority opinion amongst theists. Most theists would disagree with me. They'd say that on their view it's quite consistent that some people will end up in everlasting torment in hell. Well, I think they're wrong, but I can hardly say to them what I might otherwise say to them, well, to hell with you. Okay, so to sum up what I hope to have shown in the lectures so far. Uh, we have at the centre of the main monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, a coherent, simple and substantial claim with coherent, simple and substantial implications. Believing that God exists is believing that the most perfect person possible exists. I've suggested that be our controlling thought, perfect being theology. Such a person would be a being who is personal, indeed, transcendent, imminent, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, perfectly free, perfectly good and necessary. Believing that such a being exists gives us reason to respect the universe in which we live as his body, although that was controversial, his creation, much less controversial, to seek out his will for us in this universe and to conform our lives to it, whilst never expecting to receive a perfect revelation of his existence and will this side of the grave. To fear a last judgment when we will receive that perfect revelation and in the light of it our shameful failures will be laid bare and yet to be hoped to be clothed in glory after that last judgment and share in everlasting life with him in heaven. 
We've looked then in these first lectures at what the central claim of theism means, and then most recently, in the last uh, few minutes, at what it would mean for us individually and collectively, were it true. So the question that now presents itself is a simple and compelling one. Is it true? And to that question, we'll turn next week. Thank you for your attention this week.